Hey guys, welcome back to our podcast, The Missing Bridge in America, where two college kids speak about political and social issues to unite the country politically. Of course, we have Gannon with us as usual, but today's a very special episode because we're going to be talking about the elections with two special guests. Not sure if you, Gannon, want to introduce those guests. Yes, I do. So I'm not going to say where they're from because it should be totally expected at this point. So we'll we'll just kind of move on with how they want to introduce themselves. So this individual, um, oh, and I forgot to say, let's just say that these two have been great role models for me. So um, this individual is a senior at FIU studying poli-sci and international relations, similar to me. And this other individual is an FIU graduate of poli-sci and IR, similar to me. So without further ado, I am happy to formally introduce Alexander Anaki and Katarina Geisler. Welcome to the show, guys. So with that being said, Alex, how are you feeling? How am I feeling about what? Life or, uh, or politics? No, how do you feel being on the podcast? I'm happy to be here. I've, uh, I'm a big fan. I've always dreamt of this day. Thank you. Thank you. How about you, Kat? Yeah, I gotta say, I feel like a celebrity now, you know, to have my voice imprinted on the internet with the Alex Anaki, Gannon Shook, and Brian Escalona. It's just, it's an incredible feeling. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you. Thank you for those warm regards. Uh, well, with that being said, we thank you guys for being on the show. And we might as well get started on what we wanted to talk about. So, Today's episode, we're going to be talking about the elections, and we're going to be going kind of not only in the national aspect, but we also want to focus more locally on Colorado and Florida, specifically the states uh, that we wanted to focus on today. But more specifically, we want to focus on Joe Biden as being the projected winner of this year's election. So Joe Biden has been the projected winner. If you guys do not know, if you guys haven't watched the news, I'm sure many of the audiences already have. Joe Biden has been the projected winner of this year's elections. According to many media sources, it has not yet been certified. The electors have not yet voted for it, but it's looking like it's been the case despite the lawsuits that our president has uh, put against Biden. So with that being said, I just wanted to ask you guys, how really has your reaction been? with Joe Biden being the projected winner. I think for all of us, it was relatively a more closer election than we expected. I think a lot of the polls were saying that, that Biden was going to win uh, by a lot more than maybe how it's, it's looking like right now. I think that there was a lot of times where you could say either one was going to win, at least in the very first days. Uh, and now that Biden is the projected winner, how do you guys feel about that? Are you guys surprised? Are you guys shocked? Or just in general, how do you guys think this will work out for the United States? Alex, you can go. Sure. I, I have to say, I, um, I never expected Joe Biden to be the nominee for the Democratic Party in the first place. Um, he had unprecedented losses in, in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And so I don't think that anyone really thought that he would make it this far. Um, and before the coronavirus pandemic hit, I was convinced that we were um, we had a historically weak nominee in the Democratic Party who wouldn't be able to, to beat back against Donald Trump. And I do think that uh, had it not been for the pandemic to really expose how weak President Trump's style of governing is, uh, we would see a second term of President Trump. 
Um, but ever since the, the onset of the pandemic, there was no, there's no shock to these results. The only shock to me is that uh, there's so many people who are still supportive of President Trump, even after all that's happened over the past four years. That's a very interesting take, I'd say. Uh, I understand completely where you're coming from. And yeah, to one extent, for the Democratic Party, maybe Joe Biden wasn't seen as the strongest candidate possible. Um, there was a lot of many Democratic candidates. It all ended up uh, to it all ended to Joe Biden becoming the nominee, which was quite surprising to some people, but also not surprising for some people as well. So how about you, Kat? What was your reaction for him being the projected winner? Yeah, um, definitely agree with with Alex in the sense of when we were in primary season and before we had even, you know, selected a Democrat nominee, I did not necessarily expect Biden to go as far as he would. However, I guess one thing that we continually have seemed to be taking away from politics since 2016 is that image and, you know, brand name can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different candidates So I never also necessarily expected Trump to actually be outed for a second term. I guess my moral was low, especially after, you know, 2016 Um, primaries and the, you know, the midterms in 2018, those were also, you know, results were difficult to project how, you know, the GOP was going to organize and propel itself through this election. And I think especially what was surprising was you know, the rhetoric just a few days ago, praying that, you know, Biden would come through in Nevada, assuming that he was going to lose, you know, Georgia, Pennsylvania, et cetera. And then to see these states, you know, historically red that have flipped, I think it really does demonstrate a voter turnout that has been unprecedented. Um, we know Biden obviously received the most amount of votes in any election, you know, trumping Obama in, you know, twenty. 2012. So I think it was really a great representation of the American populace. Obviously, the Democrats did not secure all the wins they wanted to specifically, you know, in the House, Senate, South Florida, Florida as a whole, right. But I do think it was, I mean, I personally was, you know, happy with the outcome and excited to see how the Senate race will go in January. Those are very great points you bring up. And yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from. Uh, it wasn't as shocking as maybe people would have expected considering what has happened during the pandemic. People are rethinking uh, their maybe thoughts, their perspectives on the Trump administration, kind of seeing if they want a new administration or whether they want to continue with the same administration that has gone through everything that this country has gone through. Uh, so it's very interesting to see those perspectives and I completely understand. Uh, not sure if Guy wanted to add anything to that. No, yeah, just on the general perspective that I predicted Biden to win both the primaries and the um, presidential election, just because of the fact that with, again, the COVID response was a big influence on why voters voted for Biden. Um, And just based off the fact that as I was watching on election night, I think it was when Trump won both Florida and Ohio that I thought, okay, there's a chance that he actually could win this again. But then I realized look at all the mail-in ballots that still have to be counted in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Nevada. Like Trump's up big right now, but all the votes aren't in. So there's a chance that Biden could turn it around. And once I started seeing that Biden was catching up to him in a lot of these states, um, Georgia being the most surprising, it was just, I felt like, okay, I think he can probably win this. And according to the media, they projected him to win. So that's probably what's going to happen. So 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's very true because at the very beginning there was some chances where, where Trump had a he didn't he didn't ever have a lead over Biden, but there was moments where he was leading in the most majority of swing states, and then it was kind of like the days uh, after that where we started to see a complete shift in the election. Uh, it was still a close election, but it did it did seem to shift in the next few days in Biden's favor, and then ultimately leading the media to call him as a projected winner. Uh, of the election, right? Um, but as kind of like piggybacking off what, what Kat was saying, you know, this election was not only the national election, but it's also gubernatorial elections, there's also Senate re-elections and, and House of Representatives seats, uh, congressional seats in the, in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And more specifically, I wanna talk about Florida because Florida specifically had an interesting turnout on some congressional seats. And you, as you guys know, uh, Debbie Marcuso Powell and Donna Shalala, former incumbent congressional seats, they lost to Republican candidates. And it was quite close, but it was just a few percentage points off. Of course, District 26, uh, Carlos Jimenez beat um, Debbie Marcuso Powell uh, by a few percentage points. Of course, the former mayor of Miami. And then District 27 was, was won by Maria Elviar Salazar against Donna Shalala, two former incumbent Democrats that have continually been the congressional members uh, for these seats down here in South Florida. So just kind of going off what this means, what do you guys think this means for South Florida, this red wave that maybe some people didn't expect, considering that the two most prominent Democratic incumbent congressional leaders ended up losing this election to Republican seats? I think the, the first thing I would say about that is that it shows the power of partisanship. Uh, and the reason I say it, it, it shows partisanship is because Donald Trump really carried those two Republican candidates um, over to the finish line. In 2018, it, there was strong Democratic turnout. Um, and those are historically Democratic seats that um, Congresswoman uh, Mukherjee Powell and Shalala won. Uh, but when, when you think about Carlos Jimenez, I mean, that was, that was just shocking to me. Uh, because the guy's done a really bad job as mayor. He's been a really abysmal mayor. I mean, no one, no one running for mayor in Miami-Dade County this cycle even wanted his support. Uh, he couldn't really satisfy anyone with his coronavirus response. Uh, he shut down the businesses and he was reopening them. Um, he endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016 and then totally turned around and became a, a Trump Republican, which is the story of a lot of Republicans in, in Miami-Dade, I think, or a lot of voters. Um, but he wasn't a strong candidate. He announced his candidacy in like January. Uh, and Debbie ran a really good race. She raised a lot of money. So I think uh, part of the issue here is hyper-partisanship. So for example, the Democratic Party fielded a lot of great candidates to run for, for state house and state senate um, in the Miami-Dade area. And they lost all of the contested state house and uh, state Senate seats, except I think one, one house seat. Uh, even after focusing on candidate quality, even after knocking the doors when the presidential campaign wouldn't. So I think it goes to show that when a lot of people go to the polls and they vote, they're not really voting for the people anymore. Uh, they're not voting based on who the Miami Herald endorses or you know who, whoever endorses. They're voting based on the party next to their name. Uh, there was an undervote, for example, in the mayoral race where uh, Daniela Levine Cava became the new mayor of Miami-Dade County. Um, and 
a lot of people skipped voting in that race. Um, and you probably would have seen it closer if there were a D and an R next to their names, but it was a nonpartisan election technically. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether this, uh, this new hyperpartisanship persists in Miami-Dade, um, a place that has had a Republican mayor since 2004, even after voting uh, for Democratic presidential candidates in every single one of those years, um, whether that will persist when Donald Trump is no longer on the ballot. Those are very great points you make. I think that that's very true what you're saying, where a lot of people are no longer looking at the candidate individually, their own policies, what they have done in the past for Miami, or anything that their plans are to just have that, those different policies, they're focused more on the party. And I have seen that a lot. I have seen a lot of people that are just straight party voters. They, they vote for whoever has an R next to their name, for whoever has a D next to their name. And that is definitely showcased. And I know that in the in the mayor race, of course, a Democratic mayor ended up winning the election. And as you said, it was not partisan. So how how would it have would it have affected it if let's say that they actually did show their parties, right? And how would that have affected the results of the election of for the mayor of Miami Dade, right? And I completely understand where you're coming from because it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I can tell that the kind of like the voter mentality in South Florida has, has been shifting recently and it has kind of changed uh, a few people's minds and just voting for straight parties, as you were saying. Uh, I think Gannon wants to mention something. That I did. So I found it very surprising that South Florida was very competitive when it never should have been. And it's a matter of the fact that when you looked at it in July and during the Republican National Convention, there were all these people saying, oh, Joe Biden and the Democrats are running on a communist platform. If you vote for Joe Biden, you're going to be voting in socialism and communism. And especially that was to a lot of Cubans and Venezuelans in the area. And as you know, those two countries are both socialist slash communist. So it was fear mongering at the at the most. And in insight, right, it wasn't expected to work. I didn't think it was going to work, but apparently it did. So the Republicans got somewhere in South Florida and made it competitive when it never should have been. And like I said, I didn't think it was going to work, but it did. So it's very interesting to see, like I said, how competitive it was. So it's just, yeah, I just wanted to add that real quick. And yeah, um, Kat, did you want to add anything to that? Sure. Yeah. All great points that have been made. Um, I guess to start with, you know, the red wave, I guess we saw in obviously all of Florida was very interesting to see, especially considering how, you know, Biden did hold on to certain counties, especially, you know, more up north compared to us, um, but did not, you know, he was not able to succeed at, you know, maintaining those districts that Hillary Clinton did you know, pull high in in 2016. Um, we saw, you know, Miami-Dade, for example. She won that in 2016 by nearly, I think, 30 points. And then, you know, this election, we obviously saw that decrease. And going off Gannon's point, sure, it's easy to consider the idea of the different demographics in different regions of Florida. And it is an easy cop-out to say that. I mean, it's, it's obvious that Trump secured a ginormous Cuban vote. And obviously that was able to, you know, run him through South Florida and obviously get him higher up in this, you know, election than I guess previously seen in 2016. And I guess you could attribute that, you know, slightly to the foreign policy issues we've seen during his, you know, four years, how they, you know, have 
pertained to Latin and Central America. However, I think it's also something to consider the idea of Florida Dems in general have always struggled. It goes back to that, that old saying that Democrats speak up, but Republicans show out. That's always been true in Florida. We saw this in 2018, even in the midterms with DeSantis, right? Everybody was pulling high for Democratic parties in those midterms, and yet it did not come through. The Democrats have never shown out in Florida, polling in the numbers, you know, in person or mail-in as we saw this year with COVID in any capacity. And I think it also speaks to the different, you know, on ground and grassroots strategies of the Democratic Party and the different messages they sent out. I think this, this election was obviously such high strung that it was easy to miss out on certain, you know, opportunities of different campaigning. For example, on the ballot, on Florida's ballot, you know, the minimum wage was increased. And that was nothing that, you know, the Democratic Party ever campaigned on or campaigned for. And that is something that obviously, when incorporated into a platform, propels, you know, different voters to sway in different capacities. And so I think in the future for Florida to remain either a swing state or at least lean more blue, as you know, people are now suggesting it is as red and will stay red for the next few elections. It's definitely gonna come down to those grassroots campaigns as Alex was mentioning, especially in the Florida House and Senate. I mean, the Republicans just swept and were able to keep cushions in all areas, which obviously goes down to those, you know, grassroots campaigning efforts and seeing how they will move forward, especially in the midterms this upcoming year. Yeah, all good points, all good points. Um, yeah, we definitely have to see how the Democratic Party uh, will change their strategy uh, in terms of the elections in South Florida, considering, as you were saying, uh, that the polling numbers for a lot of Democratic candidates in the state were a lot higher than actually the turnout, right? And especially going back for the presidential election, I mean, Joe Biden to win Florida was a few points up, according to real clear politics polls, right? And then Trump ended up winning by almost three points uh, in that state. So it, it's also not just the national election, but as you're saying, the congressional elections uh, and the local seats as well, like the mayor and, and everything uh, that we were talking about. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the Democratic Party st starts to shift uh, the way that they conduct their grassroots uh, programs and all of that for them to kind of gain more of an influence in South Florida. And I think it's very interesting that you, the point you made of that Democrats uh, they they get they gather more support, but it seems like the Republicans are the ones that end up showing out to go vote. So I think it's just going uh, to more to incentivize people more to vote, not only for the national election, but also uh, for the local elections and all of that as well. Now, of course, they anyone who voted for the national election had to choose uh, the congressional seats, uh, but not everyone maybe was informed on a lot of the candidates and therefore just went with like the party or whatever they thought was best. Uh, maybe they weren't as informed as previous years. So I'll definitely, we definitely got to see how that will move forward in Florida. Uh, but another point that we wanted to make is specifically Colorado. And I know Kat, you wanted to talk about this uh, specifically. And I, I know you wanted to talk about district three where it seemed like there was a conservative candidate, Lauren Bobbert, I may have said that wrong, but she ended up winning District 3 in these elections. And there has also been seen more of a red wave in local politics there in Colorado in that district. I'm not sure if you want to expand more on that. 
Heck yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing up Colorado politics. So uh, just as we were mentioning with Florida, how some people are arguing that Florida is now a permanently red state, at least for the upcoming future. The opposite has actually been said about Colorado uh, maintaining an extraordinarily blue stronghold, at least, you know, nationally in the state. Um, so for example, you know, Biden won, you know, at unprecedented levels, you know, since before the 2000s. And then, of course, in the Senate, our longstanding man's John Hickenlooper, he he slid into that with literally no opposition. He won by one of the biggest margins we've seen in over a decade, uh, which is obviously a starch, a starch contrast to, you know, what happened with Cory Gardner previously and how the Senate had and the different governor races had looked a lot different in starch contrast with this political divide. Um, as a whole, we did see a lot of counties, especially near the Colorado Springs area that were in 2016, formerly Trump, that did switch to Biden. Um, and then of course we saw we saw the opposite, you know, in the southern parts of Florida, uh, near areas such as El Paso, which is obviously a large conservative hub, even though it did stay red, it decreased its red margin by a large majority, uh, which is something that, you know, we saw also down the ballot with a lot of the different amendments, they seem to lean very liberal in what did pass or fail. But yes, exactly as you said, good old District 3 home to Grand Junction and Palisade, Colorado. They are as red as red goes. You know, we've always been a, a loyal Republican county with our man, Scott Tipton. And it was actually extraordinarily surprising to me when Lauren beat him in the primaries. That was something I definitely did not expect, nor could have ever predicted or believed. I always assumed Scott Tipton being a career, you know, District 3 man just had that strong loyalty. And I think it shows the more, you know, conservative allyship gaining in the region, considering Scott Tipton was then labeled moderate compared to Lauren, right? And so it was extraordinarily interesting to see, especially as you mentioned in our House and Senate elections, different conservatives were able to rise in certain seats. I think as a whole, Colorado is obviously always leaned liberally in a semi-swing state capacity, but obviously leaning more blue. I think this election was obviously going to swing Biden no matter what. I think the voters in the Denver Boulder area just swamped everyone surrounding, especially as those are high liberal university, you know, led, you know, areas. I don't think Hickenlooper could have lost, you know, if he tried, especially after Cory Gardner's plans with coronavirus. They did not bowl over well to lots of parts of Colorado. So Overall staying blue, but yes, District 3 just they can't they can't go away, man. They're they're gonna be red for a while. I just wanna uh, touch on one of the points that Kat made regarding the amendments in Colorado, because we saw this pattern play out across the country where voters passed pretty progressive amendments. Um, it, for example, in the state of Florida, voters um, over 60% of voters chose to pass a $15 minimum wage. Yet uh, President Trump won the state of Florida by over 3%. So one of the things that we see with this, this weird partisan divide is that voters get attached to certain wedge issues, um, like, for example, the issue of abortion, or in South Florida, we see um, like uh, issues in Cuba and Venezuela and that foreign policy that, that really impact voters. Uh, so what strikes me is, like, for example, South Florida, uh, Miami-Dade County specifically, has the largest, I believe, uh, Obamacare enrollment in the country, the largest participation rate in this government program that, for example, Carlos Jimenez, um, Joe Biden, 
um, probably Salazar said they were going to get rid of. Uh, and so voters aren't necessarily looking for like, what is, what, what policies do we most prefer? It's not a policy-based issue a lot of the time. Um, I remember that when Kat and I went to a, a rally that President Trump held at FIU in early 2019, um, it was a White House event. Um, he was talking about his recognition of Wang Guaido as the, the leader of, um, of Venezuela. And that was, a, that was a big thing. Um, all of the Republicans in the state of Florida spoke at that event. Uh, there were members of the cabinet who were there. Uh, John Bolton was there. Uh, Rick Scott, I, I believe, spoke in Spanish. Rick Scott speaks awful Spanish, but he still speaks it. Uh, and so I think political parties are, are realizing that there's certain things that they can say or do to appeal to voters. Uh, in the case of Colorado's third, I think what Lauren Boebert did was she, uh, she was very anti-mask mandate. She, she runs a restaurant and her restaurant was shut down for a while because of the governor's um, executive order. And so as a consequence, she was like, why, why is my money, why is my business being taken away from me in America, this free country? And so her, uh, her candidacy was a backlash against that government overreach. So even if, you know, even if there were voters in that area, or even if there's voters in, in Florida who benefit from democratic progressive policies like that $15 minimum wage, they're going to latch on to certain things. And the Republican Party understands this very well. And I think the Democratic Party, even though um, it's messaging towards these policy interests that people likely would have or likely do have and pull well, uh, it's just not coming across with candidates. And that's, that's why we're getting this polarization. And so that's why in you know, Colorado, they have a much more radical representative than they used to. Well, that's, that's a very interesting point you make. Um, well, Kat, obviously going back off what Kat was saying, uh, it's very interesting to see Colorado. I mean, yeah, of course, uh, Colorado has been a liberal lockdown state for a very long time, and it didn't seem like it was going to change anytime soon. I guess maybe some of the congressional seats that you were mentioning, maybe were a bit of a surprise. Either way, there's still four House of Representatives, uh, Democratic House of Representatives in Colorado, and then three Republicans. Even if that may have not been expected, Democrats still uh, have the majority there. And yeah, I think that uh, a point that you, Alex, uh, were making about policy versus party and sort of attaching yourself to a party. I've actually, I have seen that for many people because if the president goes and supports uh, the guy that is, that is leading uh, change in Venezuela, that is leading everything that Venezuela is standing for right now, you know, going against the dictatorship of Maduro, right? They're going to hang on to that. And they might, that's probably going to be the, the, the thing on their mind when they think of who they're going to vote for. I mean, not everyone, right? But there's a lot of Republican, let's say Hispanics, that will latch onto that. And it doesn't really matter what Trump stands for. It doesn't really matter his foreign policy. It doesn't matter Biden's foreign policy, but it's just the fact that he appeals to the Hispanics and he understands how to gain those votes, that he will be able to get a greater turnout than people expect in the elections. And as you were saying, it's crazy because a lot of people vote, did vote for more progressive amendments, right? And I, I was looking at the minimum wage one specifically because I did notice that there was a higher, this wasn't even close. There was majority of people voted for that minimum wage increase, something that 
the conservative party, Republican party doesn't really advocate for. It's a democratic party, right? So it's definitely interesting to see how people, how, how they align more, they can align more with progressive policy yet still vote Republican or still vote for the party that they choose uh, that, or that, that they're launched onto, right? So I think that's a great point you made and it's definitely gonna be interesting to see how that changes in the next few years uh, with a Joe Biden presidency. And I guess with, a, at least in Miami specifically, with a more uh, democratic uh, leadership by the mayor, it'll be interesting to see how that starts to shift over the years and maybe their strategy, their grassroots strategy starts to shift more locally so that they can start gaining more uh, elect, um, voters specifically in the South Florida area, right? Uh, not sure, Gannon, you wanna say anything about that? No, just other than the fact that I was actually quite intrigued to listen to Kat and Alex talk about this. So, yeah, and honestly, like, I, I honestly don't know a lot about Colorado. So, it's very interesting all the points you made. I don't want it to go unnoticed. But considering the fact that I'm not really super into Colorado politics, uh, it's kind of more of a, I guess, a learning session here. <laughs> because uh, I think it's it's interesting to see what is happening in Colorado in your home state and you know how that has affected the the state and the congressional seats as well um, <laughs> but I know more specifically uh, we also wanted to talk about I, I know Gannon wanted to mention this now that there's been uh, some legal things going around in this elections and uh, Georgia has been one of the most contested states uh, in this national election right there has been more of a blue wave in Georgia than people expected, right? And I think Gannon wanted to speak more of that and expand on that. Yep. So, to be honest with y'all, I was not calling Georgia for Biden. And according to the Associated Press, Georgia is the only state that has not been called yet. And because of the fact that they, the margin of votes is right now is... 14,000 votes. That's insane. That for the fact that this many people turned out, Biden has, I think, 79,500,000 around there. And then Trump has 73,400,000 votes nationally. The fact that Georgia was is right now by 14,000 votes is crazy. And like I said, it's Georgia went last went Republican or not Republican Democrat in 1992 when Clinton won his first term. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been a very long while since Georgia has turned blue. And to be honest, why has that been the case? I give credit to Stacey Abrams for that, because as she is one of the most prominent Democrats right now who is not currently in office, even though she ran for Georgia governor in 2018, I do think that she is going to be in like She's going to be a prominent figure for Georgia. She's going to be a prominent Democrat for the years to come. And her work in getting Joe and, and getting the blue wave to come across Georgia, um, that should not go unnoticed. And the fact that the Senate races, both of them were so close that they now have to do a runoff election, that's going to decide whether or not the Republicans maintain the majority in the Senate. So although Republicans have won 50 seats and Democrats have won 48. So if the De if Democrats win both of those seats, then it's going to be a 50-50 a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris being the president of the Senate. So technically speaking, the Democrats will have the Senate if both of these Democrats win. So it's just 
as I said, and a lot of political pundits um, were calling Georgia for Trump and just seeing that the race got so close and just the fact that a lot of people turned out to vote in this election is just why really Georgia is in the state it's in right now, right? It's likely going to go blue and it's crazy to see that. And even though Trump has requested a recount, it's not going to have any influence other than maybe a couple hundred votes. So it was just very interesting to see. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Not sure if you guys want to add anything to that. Uh, not too much other than they, they already did the, um, the recount, I believe, and the Secretary of State said that he was going to be certifying the results tomorrow. Uh, one of the things that I found, and tomorrow, by the way, is uh, November 20th, um, but one of the things that I found more striking about this situation is that um, the two Republicans, the two Republican incumbents, incumbents in these Senate races called on the Georgia Secretary of State to step down because they didn't like the job he had done. They thought the election was corrupt. That's ridiculous. Um, for, one of the things that I found more, you know, just crazy about this election is the amount of people who have been advocating against our election officials, saying that they're not doing a good job, that they're not running good elections, uh, simply because these people didn't receive the outcomes they wanted. I don't think either uh, Kelly Leffler or David Perdue wanted to be in runoffs right now, but here they are. Um, Georgia, is interesting in that um, a lot of the growth has come out of uh, the Atlanta area, um, DeKalb County, Fulton County, uh, I think it's Gwinnett, the other one. Um, and so the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee had been targeting the, the two main congressional seats over there that were flippable, um, the 6th District and the 7th District. And so we saw in 2017, John Ossoff ran in a special election there. It was the most expensive house race to date, I believe, um, in the country's history. And he lost that race. Um, he lost the runoff for that race. So the Senate election kind of is a, a throwback to 2017 in that John Ossoff, again, is in a runoff. Um, but I don't, I don't know necessarily that it's that promising for Democrats in this uh, January runoff. It's a weird election. It's at the very beginning of January. Uh, and a lot of the Democrats who turn out to vote in a presidential year like this, they're not the kind of voters who turn out in midterms or turn out in special elections. And so we're seeing an extraordinary uh, amount of money being funneled into this. So the real test of it, um, like Gannon was saying, is the infrastructure that Stacey Abrams created. So whether, and, and lots of other organizers in the state, so whether or not those two Senate seats uh, go blue, which I think is a, it's a long shot, but it's, I, mean, I guess it's possible, uh, really depends on whether organizers, the real backbone of our democracy, turn people out to vote. Yeah, those, those are all fantastic points, Alex. Actually, I literally just received on my phone, NPR and CNN, it is 7.42 on November 19th, and Georgia has been called for President-elect Biden. <laughs> just to, this timestamp, yep. this, you know, this moment. <laughs> um, I guess the only thing I would add to this is the concept of, as Alex literally just pointed out, infrastructure. I tapped on this a little earlier when I talked about, you know, Florida Dems and how they're going to have to reorganize and obviously try to propel themselves, especially in the next midterms to then, you know, make up for grounds lost in this election. I think it's interesting because, yes, Stacey Abrams did do the work that was needed, especially in voter registration and combating 
the the concept of unjust voting and you know voter fraud and that was a fantastic effort that obviously propelled a democrat win for you know majority of different state seats but it's also interesting to see the coordinated effect of organizations when they work together in one solid effort versus disorganized so for example you know the compartmentalization you saw in florida between projects that were dedicated solely towards registering new voters and then different you know fundraisers and different organizations that then targeted you know the asian american populace in atlanta or you know the different latino representatives in different parts of georgia etc you know Stacey abrams definitely recognized the power of different minority-led organizations and how to coordinate an effort that did not double dip. You do not need seven different organizations trying to get people registered to vote, right? You do need seven different organizations working together on different populaces and different voter turnout, you know, concepts and affections. I mean, we saw this in Arizona where the Native American vote propelled Biden to a victory there, right? And so I think it was definitely a lesson to learn, especially as different subgroups of, you know, state Democrats try to regroup for the next election and just going forward in the future. Very interesting points. And Kat got to what I was going to do. That's okay. Um, but it, yes, they did just call uh, Georgia for Biden, most likely. So, or they did. So, yeah, but it was just very interesting points that you two had brought up after that. So, oh, you're good, Kat. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, I can't believe we got the news on the podcast. It's kind of crazy. Kind of good. We've done it, right you guys. There. We did it. We're recording <laughs> history. Yep. <laughs> yes. yes. Breaking news in the middle of the podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, now Georgia's called for Biden. Um, so yeah, I think you guys make a lot of great points of maybe the different strategies that Georgia implemented for them to turn blue in this election versus Florida. Uh, it's definitely interesting to see the contrast there and the different people involved that have kind of solidified that in the different states and sort of how the runoff elections has also affected congressional seats in both states as well. And great points that you guys make, but to kind of like finish off the podcast, one of the final points, if not the final point we want to talk about is, you know, we still we still are seeing this lawsuits come to pass, you know, states are starting to certify their elections, right? Um, but more specifically, how is this delay of the transition to the Joe Biden presidency, at least a projected one? How is this going to affect his presidency? How How is the this going to impact what he is going to be able to do in January 20th? And how do you guys see this um, sort of changing these things? Uh, sure. Um, I think right now, the thing that surprises me the most is I understand supporting candidates for a multitude of reasons, but when you have a candidate who so evidently, you know, just degrades the concept of, you know, core classic American government 101 democracy, it is it's almost startling to see. And it's very interesting. I, I was listening today, actually, to John Oliver discuss William Burr, right? And this man who obviously is a strong, you know, general uh, attorney that's been here for forever, Republican stakeholder, right? And the idea of how many checks and balances should exist in a presidency, right? And how much limitation should be put. And of course, people, you know, of strong conservative values such as Burr lean towards the idea that the only checks and balances should really come from solely, you know, impeachment 
And that's really about it, right? And I think this Trump presidency has definitely been a presidency unlike others in the idea of suggesting what the presidency should and shouldn't be allowed to do and under what rights we feel entitled to either under a constitution as you know political morals go etc and so as this transition of power is delayed it's obviously detrimental for the idea of politics conceptually what do we think america is supposed to be founded on how do we think this democracy should be funneled and it's really interesting to consider america if you want as the oldest democracy considering the fact that this has relied on the idea that when people are elected that are staunchly different in ideology from the past then it is okay and smooth to run these transitions of power because it is less about that person and more about the country and so as we see these delays i think it's really going to suggest a lot about the american morality especially with politics and what we value right and this has obviously been seen internationally coming under you know fire as well in the netherlands and obviously you know england with their you know shift in power after theresa may etc so it'll definitely be interesting to see how as we i guess attempt to tip a pendulum back to a middle how this affects not only us, but international politics. And then of course, the obvious answer is COVID, right? There is obviously articles everywhere stating that President-elect Joe Biden is unable to receive, you know, very essential information on the COVID-19 pandemic, information on, you know, what states hold what PPE stockpiles, how the vaccine will be distributed, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, if delays in transition power continue, this pandemic will just continue to be as mismanaged as it has been in the past. Um, however, I don't think that's going to be an argument that shifts this transition of power into finally being one that Trump relents and relinquishes to. So I definitely am going to keep a close eye on how long he goes out kicking and screaming. <laughs> I was listening to NPR earlier and a former administrator of the General Services Administration, which is the body that we're waiting on to uh, allow the president-elect to start the transition, basically. Um, he was saying that one of the things that's most important that the president-elect needs from this is the ability to communicate and collaborate directly with um, the different uh, cabinet level departments. So for example, um, during the Trump administration, a lot of these departments have shifted from what they looked like during the Obama administration. The State Department has gotten a lot smaller um, a lot of career foreign service officers are no longer there. It's been a complete or reorganization. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the VA, all of these have, have changed or had a lot of leadership struggles uh, and tumult within the organization. So it's definitely to the benefit of, um, of President-elect Biden if he has access to all of this, um, if his team is actually able to do that. Um, it would be ridiculous for him to enter office on January 20th and just see this tattered federal government left to him and not really know what to do with it, not having spoken to any people in the, um, in the Trump administration, nothing like that, because he's simply not allowed to. When I look back on 2016, I think about how Hillary Clinton literally won the popular vote by $3 million, or not $3 million, <laughs> 3 million votes, and she conceded the election the next day. And that was that. And I think a day after that, President Obama said, all right, President-elect Trump, you know, let's come in here, let's start the transition. Um, and so when you see 
President Trump not choose to extend that courtesy to the president-elect, I think it shows fundamentally that he doesn't really care about good governance. He doesn't care about uh, how these cabinet uh, departments are running. He doesn't care about what the country looks like after he's gone uh, because it, and it's a shame that so much of it has turned into political games. So much of it has turned into partisanship. Um, I, I think earlier on um, when the votes were still being counted, people were tweeting that it was like, this is the kind of election that the United States would send in observers uh, and say it wasn't free and fair um, because there's, there's so much drama about it. And then the president refuses to leave office basically. So it's frustrating to see that, but we really, we can't get too caught up in it. And I trust that, that the president elect Biden is doing what he can with what he has. Um, and from what I've seen so far of the team he's assembling, it's a lot of alums of the Obama administration. So there's people there who know how to run the government. My concern is they know how to run the government as it was uh, in early 2017. A lot of things have changed. So it'll be curious. I'm curious to see how it'll pan out. And for some people, that's just kind of with Biden being elected, we just kind of are thinking, are we going to go back to some sort of normalcy like we saw in the Obama days where the Trump days, because it was not a normal presidency. It was not a typical what you would expect presidency. And it's certainly for somebody who say would support him in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. I did not expect to see his presidency go down the way it did. Um, And it's unfortunate, really. It's the fact that he in his head is, I mean, he's an egotistical person. Like that's obvious, right? But it is unfortunate to see that he is still claiming that he's won. He's not conceding and he is making it a hard tumultuous path for Biden to even start off. And Alex, I agree with what you're saying. Like he doesn't to me and and I kind of agree with that like he doesn't care what the country looks like when he's gone because he's not he doesn't hold the power it's going to be Biden and if any way that he can try to sabotage his efforts he is going to try to but sometimes in some of his efforts and some of his wishes can't be granted because of that and many of the Republican senators I feel like are starting they're not going to say it publicly but they're starting to concede that okay Biden won this so and especially after all the recounts that have been conducted across several states so it doesn't make sense to me that trump is still trying to go after all of these states with lawsuits that he can't win and that he doesn't have the money to file for i don't know if y'all have noticed that and like with the department of homeland security director i think he was fired tuesday if i'm not mistaken and it was because oh well the recounts are a good thing like it wasn't fraud, right? There wasn't voter fraud. And there are a lot of conservatives who are saying there was voter fraud. And as that a point somebody made, I forget if it's either Alex or Kat, but it was about the election integrity. Like nobody trusts the elections. Like 2016, the Democrats didn't trust it because the Electoral College voted over the popular vote. Nobody, the Republicans don't trust it this year because they're thinking it's voter fraud because of all the mail-in ballots. So It's a matter of polarization in this country that has really stirred the pot. And Trump, again, continued to stir the pot and add fuel to the fire of polarization in this country. So whatever happens, happens. So I'm just and it it is I'm not going to say scary, but it is very intriguing just to see what Biden can do. And I do think he's doing with his best with what he has. So we'll just kind of see what develops within the next couple months until january 20th yeah and it seems like at this point uh that our states are starting to certify their election results 
that all, all the lawsuits of voter fraud of everything that has been going on for the past few weeks, uh, it's all going to, I think it's all going to go down within the next few days. And I'm pretty sure Joe Biden is going to be uh, certified as the actual president of the United States. Of course, he's not going to take power until January 20th, but in that transition, when that transition process, I'm sure he'll able to, he'll be able to get more uh, help and more access to what he needs to prepare for the presidency, right? Um, but I think that a lot, what a lot of people have seen in this election, uh, which I think has been kind of different, uh, is that uh, they, they've been uh, seeing it as an, another replication of Al Gore versus Bush, but that those were completely different times. And in this year's elections, yes, there was a delay for there to be even a projected winner, right, because of the mail-in ballots. And, you know, we had a, we had a few episodes talking about mail-in ballots, and there are some uh, irregularities, I guess, in a sense, where there are ballots that can go missing. Uh, there are also uh, ballots that never get sent or they get rejected, whether it be a signature missing, whether it be all of that. A lot of votes don't get counted, but it is not enough or at least sufficient to at least at this point that what has shown is that it's not sufficient to turn over the presidency uh, to Trump. If anything, it will be a couple hundred. But even in that case, there's a lot of states that have just been leaning more towards Biden throughout time, you know, and at least in the first week of the election, maybe people thought it could go either way. But once Biden started to gain a lead in majority of swing states, and it didn't seem to change in, in Trump's favor, uh, I think that at that point, the, the lawsuits sort of lost uh, their significance, and it didn't seem like it was going to shift anytime soon. Uh, so it does seem like Biden is going to take the powers very soon, and we're going to start seeing it in the next few days and in the next few weeks, most possibly, right? So I kind of understand where you guys are coming from as well. But with that being said, guys, I mean, we talked about the national elections. We talked about the congressional elections that you guys wanted to focus on some strategies the Democratic Party has implemented, some strategies the Republican Party has implemented, and how that has been reflected in local politics. And honestly, with that being said, I mean, it was a great episode. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, we appreciate having you guys. It was very uh, a great pleasure. Uh, we always love having different guests, and this is the first time you guys are on our podcast. So we thank you guys for taking time out of your day to do this. Gana, you want to ask something? <laughs> You already know advertising the Instagram page, because apparently at the end of every episode, that is a that's a chore for me. So I'm going to do that. So, yeah, if you haven't followed the Instagram page, please do so at the missing bridge. Again, that is the at the missing bridge on Instagram. Um, that's it. I was going to say <laughs> if you guys have any final notes. No, this has been fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. I hope that. Uh, one of the lessons that people take from this election is to, well, to, to logically read the news and to make sense of their own information and to keep being engaged because there's no reason to stop being engaged. It's, uh, it's really important. Retweet. So, yes. yes, healthy yes, so political true. consumerism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. People need to stay involved in politics, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whoever's viewing our podcast. You have to stay connected and, you know, just because of an election, uh, you know, you're still going to have to advocate for your policies. You know, politics is an ever growing process and there's different elections that come up. I mean, there's going to be midterm elections in two years. Right. Obviously. Um, but yeah, we're going to see how that goes. Um, but thank you, guys. We're happy to have you guys. We thank you guys for being here. With that being said, 
We hope you guys have an amazing day.